Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Father, we do thank you. We do praise you that you're an awesome God, that you have been working a uh, around the clock father in this little church that you've been doing so much father it's just obvious to the most casual observer that your hand is true and faithful father i pray that we'd always remember the things that you have set in motion for us father and that we would be faithful to walk in them you have forged a path father and i pray that uh, we would just walk down that path in your grace and your mercy and enjoy the ride father you're a good god And I pray that your spirit would be here today, that we could focus on you and that we'd stay focused on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We're knee deep in the life of King Solomon. King Solomon was David's son. King Solomon took over for a very big, famous King David. He had to walk in his father's footsteps and it was a tall order to fill. Everyone loved David. David did everything right. Uh, He was probably the king of all time, space, and dimension, and it was probably a difficult task to follow after him. And Solomon, uh, as he was taking over the throne, he had a dream, and God uh, uh, revealed himself to him in a dream. And he said, Solomon, what would you like? Give me anything you want. And Solomon said, I just want to be able to come in and come out. I want to know how to follow in my father's footsteps. And it really touched God's heart. God says, you know, you could ask for money, you could ask for women, you could ask for your enemies to be killed. But no, you asked for the right thing. You asked for wisdom. And Solomon goes on to the fame of being the wisest man that ever lived. And Solomon wants to build the temple. His father David would have liked to build the temple, but God says, you're not going to build the temple because you're a man of bloodshed. David And so your son, Solomon, Shalom, peace, your son of peace is going to be the one that's going to erect this huge temple. And we watched the temple then being built and we saw the symbolism. We saw the things there. It was a magnificent structure. It was just caked and double caked and triple loaded with gold. Everything was gold everywhere. And it was a magnificent structure and it had huge symbolism. It was a place for all of Israel to gather, to come together and to celebrate the Lord And we had the grand opening, if you would, of the temple last two weeks whenever we got together. And there, the best part of the temple is that God shows up. This huge ball of fire of the glory of the Lord. Everybody steps back and goes, whoa, God. I mean, God showed up and we talked about that as his Shekinah glory, the glory of the Lord filling the temple and everybody having a party and a half. They were supposed to have this seven-day festival and they said this is so much fun being here with god let's do it seven more days and everything is just going solomon's way everything is set up and we are just having a great time things go downhill from there chapter nine says now it came about when solomon had finished building the house of the lord In the king's house, his own house, which took more time to build than the temple did, and all that Solomon desired to do. So 
So everything in his little heart was fulfilled. He's satisfied. He's on top of the world. At that point, verse 2, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon when he had that revelation in a dream. And the Lord said to him, he said, I have heard your prayers. And I like that. God does hear our prayers. I've heard your prayers and your supplications, the things that you've asked for, which, you've, uh, which you have made before me. I have consecrated the house which you have built, meaning I put my stamp of approval on there just like you've asked, which you have built by putting my name there forever. And listen to what God says, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as for you, and here's the hard part, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, Here's the if, and then, God says, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel. How long? Forever. Just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if, if, that's that biggest word in the Bible, if you or your sons shall indeed turn away from following me and shall not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you and shall go and serve other gods and worship them then (coughs) consequences will be I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight so Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. I love that figure of speech. But anyway, verse 8, he says, And this house will be become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss, right? And say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, Well, they were so stupid. Because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. So Solomon is getting another word from the Lord. God wants to speak to him. And he says, Solomon, in so many words, I've done my part. I've showed up. uh, You asked for me to be here, I'm here, right in front of you. You've got my attention just like you've asked for. We've got the whole thing set up. And God is saying, I've made a deal with you. If you are willing to keep the law, be a good boy, do the Ten Commandments, do what you need to do, I'm going to work with you. I've set a course for you. And I like this. The word that he uses, he says at the end of verse 3, he says, My name therefore, uh, my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And I love that. I think of the word perpetually, and it's an important concept, I guess, is you think of perpetual motion. If you were to have perpetual motion, I think of a, a spacecraft that's traveling out in space, 
I guess the, the theory is that when you're out in, away from the Earth's atmosphere, you're away from the Earth's pressure, that when you go out into actual true space, space is the absence of something. It's a huge vacuum is what space is. And so it's what you'd have is perpetual motion. If you ever watch, you know, I think of the Saturn V rocket, you think of, you know, the, the shuttle goes off into space. You think of the little, you know, Mars rover that crashes out there. The idea is when you're going out into orbit, you have to have enough thrust and enough pressure to break away from the Earth but then once you get into outer space, you start cranking up to these speeds. You start going up to about, I guess, 25,000 miles per hour. And as you're cranking up to 25,000 miles per hour, you bust out of the Earth's atmosphere. And then you hit this huge vacuum. And then you don't need anything else to keep going 25,000 miles per hour. You're just cooking right along and you're going at this speed. And there's nothing there in space to slow you down. There's no oxygen, there's no air, there's no dust, there's nothing. There's just a big vacuum. And you're just, you have a perpetual motion. So if they want to send a guy to the moon, they have to calculate on all these things on where the Earth is turning. So when this spaceship goes up, it breaks out of the Earth's atmosphere, and then they launch it right towards the moon. And then all they need is about a little propane tank of fuel to direct them around. They just go, shh, shh. But they're cooking at 25,000 miles per hour. And then they've got to sh hit a back pressure to slow themselves down to go into the moon's orbit. And then they just need a couple of, you know, firecrackers to blast them off to go back to Earth. There's, there's nothing in the way. They have a perpetual motion. There's nothing there to slow it down. And God is saying, he's saying, I like this. He's going, I've got you and I've cleared a path for you. And now it's just perpetual motion to get you to walk the Christian walk and to go down there. I've, I've, I've opened up the door and now the only thing we really got to worry about is the things that we have to put in the way of God's plan that is going to cause resistance. And poor Solomon. He's got, the, he's got it wide open. He's shooting right out the door. Nothing's there, but Solomon is going to start to put things in his path that are going to cause resistance to slow him down, and he's going to recognize he's going to crash and burn. And you're going to watch the wisest man in the world blow it. And we're going to see, and we want to dissect this, and we're going to see a couple of things that, that he's going to do wrong. And, and God's even telling me, you know, if, if, you're going to, if you're going to walk away from me, then you're going to expect a problem. And everything that we've got is going to be destroyed. And I love that concept. God's saying, you're going to become a proverb and a byword. And so it's like the average man on the street, right? If you look at it from his perspective, he's going to sit down and says, man, look at Israel. They had the temple. They had the gold. They had all this stuff. And God says, you walk away from me, it's going to be a heap of ruins. And some guy's going to walk by and says, oh, don't ever be an Israel. Don't ever be a Jew. Don't ever be, you know, one of these people that lived in Jerusalem. And it, it, it's a, to be an Israelite, and that's just going to be an automatic proverb. It's going to be an automatic buzzword. Don't be a blank. And, and God's saying, you're going to be coined a phrase. Everyone's going to look at you, and you're going to be such an example. And people are going to say, Look at this heap of ruins. How did this pile of rubble get here? Oh, you're as dumb as the Israelites. They turned their backs on God, and now look what happened to them. And I think of that. You know, you, you, you say to somebody, you know, 
We watch them walk with the Lord. You know, we watch them fall apart. We've got poor Billy Bob in our church, and he's running with the Lord real good, and then poor Billy Bob stumbles and falls. And you watch the next guy pull up, and you say, hey, buddy, you know, don't be a Billy Bob, you know? Billy Bob was stupid. You're walking down the same path. You've got everything going your way. Don't pull a Billy Bob on me. Billy Bob is a guy that turned and walked away from the Lord. And God says, don't be that byword. Don't be a, a, a proverb. Don't turn around and say, oh, I can't believe how dumb they were. And that's what everyone's going to see. The average man on the street's going to look at it and gasp and say, whatever happened to them? Well, they pulled an Israelite. That's what they did. They, they were smart enough to walk with God and then they were dumb enough to walk away from him. So God's going to bring all this on this calamity. So let's break down a couple things that we're going to see Solomon do wrong. Things that are going to add friction to his flight path, if you would. Verse 10. Now you can read some of these things and say it sounds real good. But if we know the end result is failure, it causes us to question them. Verse 10. And it came about at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses. So 20 years later says, the house of the Lord and the king's house. And it says, Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, timber and gold, according to all his desire. Then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Sounds nice. So Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him. So... Hiram, king of Tyre, he was the guy up north, the northern border up around Lebanon, if you would. And if you remember, Hiram was the guy that uh, turned around and, and gave an abundance to Solomon. And, he, and he, he provided, and they were good friends. And then he goes, Solomon, I want to help you build this huge temple that you've got. So Solomon, what is he trying to say? He says, I want to give you a gift. You know, what can I give you? I'm going to give you these 20 cities, chunk of real estate. I want you to have this as a gift to say thank you. So Hiram turns around. He's going to come down south and he's going to look at these 20 cities. And uh, verse 12, he says, So Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him. And they didn't please him. What's this trash you're giving me? And he said, What are these cities which you've given me, my brother? So they were called the land of Kabul to this day. Kabul, Kabul, where it means worthless trash. And Hiram turned around, and I have a hard time understanding this chain of events here. And Hiram sent to the king 120 talents of gold. So Hiram comes down, and he looks at this, and he goes, "Is the ghetto. Hey, thanks, but no thanks. You gave me some swampland. Not impressed with this, Solomon. I've sat down there. I've given you gold to help you build your temple. I've given you lumber and timber. I've given you workers. We've worked out wages to send down all the, the mighty Lebanon ships to come down here. You turn around and give me these junky cities. And then he turns around and gives them 120 talents of gold. Now, I, I, sifting through this, I guess there's a couple ways to take a look at this. You could turn around and say, Maybe Hiram's looking at this and he's saying, Solomon, you're not supposed to give me anything. I'm supposed to give you something. You're the great king of the God of Israel, the one true God. The way it works is I give things to you. 
And you can turn around and look at it the other way and maybe he's saying, man, I'm so insulted by this. I guess I, I, I got to give you something back. But he's pretty insulted over this. And I, you can look at it and say maybe Solomon, and if you understand the economics of what happened, Solomon sunk everything he had into the temple. He had nothing to give him back. No matter how you look at it, Solomon dishonored his friend. Didn't treat him with respect. Didn't give him a good enough gift back. Didn't appreciate what he had. Maybe Solomon was playing cheap and he says, well, I'm going to give you this because this is all I've got. And Hiram says, nah, that's not the way it works. That's not the way we're supposed to be given and taken. And either way you're looking at it, you have a heathen is going to outgive Solomon. <coughs> Bad witness. Bad example for you and I if the world can be more generous than the church. Bad example for us if we are to be Christians and we give cheap gifts back. Oh, man, I really love you. You've done everything for me. Went down to the Dollar General, spent a buck on you, wrapped up a gift and gave it to you. And we do have a tendency to be rather cheap. And Solomon is turning around looking at this. He's paying the dishonor to him and somehow or another it's working out there. I just think that I, I can't quite understand what's happened here, but it seems that, that obviously this guy here, Hiram was a friend and he turns around and says, Solomon, just let me give the money to you. Let's keep it going this way. Don't think you have to insult me by giving me a cheap gift back. Weird. Part of the friction process, being a cheap giver. Part of the things that uh, one of the first hallmarks we can look at us going down is, is that we don't reciprocate what other people have done for us. A lot of people have blessed me. And I, I can't be cheap and not even saying thank you. Not even uh, appreciating what, what needs to happen. You can have a lot of people come over and help me put my roof on my house. You know, but when you need your roof done on your house, uh, I can be hard to find. <laughs> Work day, oh, I got something to do. That's not the right heart. You know, it's uh, we, we help someone move. And we go, oh, man, we're all up there sweating, moving boxes up and down. And then we go, okay, now I'm getting ready to move. And where did everyone go? They're all gone. And it, it should be a time that we should be generous. In the same way that people have been generous to us, we should be generous back. Treat other people the same way. So we're watching this now. That Solomon's starting to do a couple things wrong here. Verse 15. He says, now this is the account of the forced labor which Solomon levied to build the house of the Lord, his own house. So he had forced labor. People that were not just joyfully giving, they were forced to. And this is going to be an important point for us. It says, uh, to build the house of the Lord, his own house, and the Milo. And that's going to be a stickler point for us, this Milo. The wall of Jerusalem Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. There's going to be a couple of cities that Solomon is going to have built and he's going to use forced labor to do it. And we're going to see this word Milo. A Milo is going to be a fortified wall. It's really one of these turrets, a tower that you're seeing at the edge of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden we're watching, if you would, Jerusalem being this beautiful city that should be open to all the people and we're going to watch a Milo start to be built around Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to tell you Solomon's going to blow it. 
He's going to fail miserably. He's going to put his son Rehoboam on the throne. Rehoboam is going to try and walk into his father's footsteps, and basically what's going to happen. And Jeroboam is going to revolt against Rehoboam. We got that? Solomon's son's Rehoboam. He should be the heir to the throne. Jeroboam's going to come up, and he's going to rip the country in half and cause a civil war. Jeroboam comes up, and he says, I'll tell you why. I don't want to be part of this kingdom anymore. And the reason he states is because your father Solomon built the Milo. For the average man on the street, I think that what he's starting to say here is, you know, we want to be part of Jerusalem. We want to be part of this God thing. We've got God, the Shekinah glory. We've got all this access to God. Solomon comes up and what does he start to do? He starts to build a fortified city out of Jerusalem and builds the Milo. And the average man on the street is starting to say, wait a second, pal, you're up there in your ivory towers and you're starting to use that as a tool to separate me from God. And man on the street is going to resist that and revolt and says, we're not going to be part of this. You're not going to take God and throw him in a corner and say, now I got to pay 25 cents to get through the toll to go see him. We built it. God should be accessible for all of us. And Jeroboam, if you wanted to go through that whole process in chapter 11, verse 27, once we get there, he's the one that's going to say, it's the Milo that drove me up the wall. I couldn't handle it. How dare you build a fortified tower to make the Jerusalem look like a, a fortress instead of a city without walls, which is a buzzword in the Bible to say that it's a land of peace. We don't need to have a wall up. Everyone can come or go as they want. You see the new Jerusalem is going to be built. We're going to watch. Israel is going to be established without walls. It's a land of peace. People can come and go. That's the utopia, if you would. But the Milo is going to be a problem. And he's using forced labor. Verse 16. Another thing that's going to cause resistance, right? And it says, For Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer, which is going to be a southern city. He's going to come up from the south and he's going to take over this city, Gezer, uh, and burn it with fire. And he killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Pharaoh comes up and says, you married my daughter Solomon. I'll tell you what, you got these Canaanites still living in the land. I'll go up and we'll burn their city to the fire and I'll give you this prime piece of real estate to start another fortress. So Solomon built Gezer in the lower Beth Horon and Baalith and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah. So he's fortifying himself. And on top of that, all the storage cities which Solomon had. Storage would mean he's starting to hoard things, right? Another piece of friction that's coming Solomon's way. And all the storage cities which Solomon had, even the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and all that it pleased Solomon to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, in all the land under his rule. So doesn't this sound good? Solomon's getting big and, and, and happy. As for all the people, the poor guy on the street, who were left of the Ammonites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the sons of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land whom the sons of Israel were unable to destroy utterly from them 
Solomon levied forced laborers even to this day. So Solomon had some slaves. Maybe you could call him just the average minimum wage worker if you don't like the term slave. These guys were forced to work to make a living. Now I suppose at this point we can kind of clap and say, these guys were all the scum anyway. God said get rid of them all. They were all supposed to die. The Israelites were supposed to go into the promised land and wipe out all these people. And I guess if they didn't wipe them out, then it's by the mercy of God that at least they can be a slave. So we're not all that bad. But I think it's starting to cause a rift in the people themselves. You're starting, if you would, to cause a two-tiered society. You're starting to have class envy. I don't know if that was God's design and intent to sit down there and to have some people be forced into just labor while other people were treated like royalty just by their birth verse 22 but solomon did not make slaves of the sons of israel nope they would never do a hard job they wouldn't dig a ditch for they were men of war his servants his princes his captains his chariot commanders and his horsemen these were the chief officers who were over solomon's work 550 who ruled over the people doing the work as soon as Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her, then he built the Milo. Now, three times in a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and a peace offering on the altar, which he had built to the Lord, burning incense with them on the altar, which was, born, uh, which was uh, before the Lord, so he finished the house. So you're watching, if you would, this guy that's the average man on the street is seeing that there's a class warfare going on. You're watching the Milo starting to be built. And you're watching Solomon and all of his wealth hoard everything together. Now, once again, there's, you can say, good boy, Solomon. You're, you're establishing you know, the, the Israelites as God's chosen people and you're showing the blessings of the Lord. But you're seeing the, 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 the hint behind this of the friction, a degree of arrogance, if you would. It's a, hidden, it's a hidden little piece of friction in there, but it's that arrogance behind what's happening that's going to start to work its way out, that's starting to cause Solomon to crash and burn. It would have been nice if we talked about last Sunday that as God has blessed us so much, He has blessed us so that we would bless others. And he has blessed certain peoples, not, in, not so they would hoard it to themselves, but they could give and share. And hence it becomes a sense that all of us can have uniformity, all things being in common, because we have. So God blessed me with this great ability to play piano. Do I keep it all to myself and just hoard my piano skills and sit in my room? Or do I share that to make someone else who's depressed and miserable come in and hear a piano concerto or whatever it is and they're all, oh, that's made my whole life and see now I've shared my gifts and I've given it out. And it's the way it is with all of our gifts. They're given for us to express and to share. And so he's building a military now. So King Solomon, he also built a ship of fleets in Ezron Geber, which is near Elroth uh, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, sailors who knew the sea along with servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and took, as in grab hold of the plunder of war, 420 talents of gold from there 
and brought it to the to King Solomon. So Solomon now is not just resting on his own gifts that people are giving him. He's now started this fire that needs to be fed of his needs of gold. And now he's going out to start grabbing hold of that gold and saying, I need more money, I need more money. You can almost sense this addict side of him. I've got so much gold everywhere, I need more. And now he's going to go out and grab hold of it and take it in. So it sounds kind of good, like the Lord's really blessing good old Solomon. And now we see another side that sounds like it's a good old blessing of Solomon. It says, chapter 10, verse 1, Now when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon, according to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. So we're getting into a famous passage where the queen of Sheba, the queen of Sheba would be the queen of the, who? Sabians. Who are the dreaded Sabians? Who got bothered by the dreaded Sabians? Who? Oh, come on. Job? Job was sitting there minding his own business, right? And who came up and stole all of his 10,000 camels and 5,000 things? The hordes of Sabians would come in and grab hold of him and rip old Job apart. Remember, we made a few jokes about the dreaded Sabians. Never mind. But that's the Queen of Sheba, which is around uh, Air, uh, Arabia, Saudi Arabia. And she's going to be a woman of renown. And actually, it's going to be, you know, she was beautiful. She was rich. She was attractive. And she's traveling some thousand, twelve hundred miles or so to come see Solomon. So it, it's a high honor. And so this woman's coming up and she's going, hey, I'm a queen. I've heard about these things. I just, I've heard you're supposed to be the smartest man in the world. Just how smart are you? So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue. I don't know. That's a whole bunch of people with her. With, uh, with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. So she's coming bringing a gift as well, a nice gift. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So she goes, here's some brain stumpers for you. And Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explain to her. It almost has that sound that Solomon is letting it all out on the table. He's got to leave nothing as far as discretion goes. And he's, I think, out to impress this woman and says, I want to just show you how good I am. And so, throw it, go ahead, give me your hardest brain teaser. You try and lay one on me and I'll, I'll sit down and discuss everything to you. And he's just sitting down there in his pomp and glory and having a heyday with this. And when the verse four says, when the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon from the house that he had built. So she's looking at this temple and going, this is art, baby. She looked at the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters in the attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. So she's walking in and she goes, I can't believe you've got this whole house running like a clock. You got food coming, you got waiters, you got men there with their cups and everybody's in their little tuxedos and everybody's lined up and she's going, I've never seen anything like this before. You have got this down to a science. And she's just going, ah, you know, there's no more spirit in her. And then she said to the king, 
Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports. I was skeptical. Until I came and my eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. Wow, you're better than I could ever dream. And listen to this. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity. The report which I heard. How blessed are your men, Solomon. Woo! How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold. So a talent of gold, we said, was about 70 pounds. This is a huge chunk of change. She's laying down at the table and saying, Man, you've impressed me. Here's a gift. A very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. So you get this feeling. Here she is. She's going, I'm really, really impressed. And notice what she's impressed over. All the men, the order, the way the whole house is run. She's like, this is truly, truly impressive. Now, if you've been with us, got a hard time here because we understood that when David wanted to build the temple God said no David said well if I can't build it and my son has to we saw that David started to amount for himself this huge war chest and to start to amass some we said 19 billion dollars worth of gold to give to his son David also turned around in his latter years of his life and we went through five chapters of how who david set up every single little detail of the temple go to chronicles it tells you five chapters of david said this family's going to blow the trumpet during this time this family's going to be the priesthood at this time there's going to be a whole cycle of this this guy's going to stand there this cup you know cupbearer's got to stand there and david even says and these families are going to be doing this job these families are going to be doing this job these families are going to be doing this job and everybody's got everything together so what is solomon actually doing he's doing nothing than following the blueprint of his father Queen of Sheba comes in and goes, Whoa, Solomon, you the man. How did you ever think of all this? And he goes, Well, you know, I put a few things together in my sleep and I just come up with them. Now, it gets even worse. Because, you know, Solomon, the first time that he was there in the vision from the Lord and the Lord says, Have anything you want. What does he say? He asks for one thing. He says, I need to know what? How to come in and come out how to how to act as a king solomon's like i'm just a, a fool i gotta sit in my, my my father's footsteps and sit on this throne and judge people I, I don't know whether i should be sitting kneeling or standing you know i don't know what i should be doing or where it should go how am i supposed to do this and who god says then i'm going to give you the wisdom and certainly certainly you could at least say, Solomon, God told you how to do this. God told your father, David, to do this. The credit, you should be wise enough to be humble enough to sit down and to say, hey, it's, it's a God thing. God put this together. It's not me. But he turns around and he sucks it up and takes a little pride and goes, yeah, that's me. Look what I've done. That's all what I've done. My hand. 
Queen of Sheba, I think he really wants to impress her, have another woman coming up that travels a thousand miles to come here to wisdom of Solomon. And buddy, that's a huge force of resistance for that path of that rocket is that pride. And it's just in buckets all over Solomon. You go, pal, you are on the downward path to going out. But you know, it sounds real good. Verse 11, And also the ships of Hiram, uh, which brought gold from Orif, uh, brought in from Orif, uh, Orfer, something like that, someplace down there, a very great number of Elmug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the Elmug trees, whatever these are, precious, rare trees, I don't know, uh, supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house and also lyres, lyres, right? And harps uh, for the uh, singers. Such Elmug trees have not come in again, nor have they been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the Queen of Sheba all her desire which she requested. So you got to give her a big present back. Besides what he gave her according to his royal bounty, then she turned and went to her own land together with her servants. So a good trade is being exchanged here. I think he wants to impress her a little bit more than poor Hiram. We've got 20 chintzy cities. But anyway, now the, the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was, oh, that's just a fluke that it would be 666 talents of gold. Don't you think? Numbers like that in the Bible are just coincidence that it says in Revelation 13 that the number of the beast is what? 666. And you go, Solomon, how much gold did you take in every year? 666 talents. Number of man. Number of the beast. You go, Solomon, you and your pride and all your wealth coming into you, it's your humanity that's going to start to trip you up. Just a coincidence, I'm sure. But the weight of the gold which came into Solomon in one year, this was his tax revenue collection amount, was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. So he's now going to make this huge shield of what? Gold. Isn't that a little ironic? You're going to use your gold to protect yourself? That's a little... That's pretty sad. It's pretty sad when we we trust in our savings account. We trust in our rich daddy, whatever, that's always got to come bail us out with a check whenever we have a problem. You know, I wreck the car. I just, you know, write a check and take care of it. Uh, you know, I got a problem. I'll just go, hey, Dad, I need some more cash. I got, I need, I need some money. It's amazing how whenever we have a problem, we think money's going to solve it. And I guess if we had that money, then we'd never really turn to God. And here's Solomon saying, my gold is going to protect me. I've got shields of gold. Look, you know, bullets come at my way. What's going to protect me? God? No, I got my shield of gold up there. Come on, Solomon. More friction in the path getting kind of obvious at this stage so he's got his 300 shields of beaten gold using three minas of gold on each shield and the king put them in the house of the forest of lebanon this is just his winter home moreover the king made a great throne of ivory 
And, you know, ivory is supposed to be pretty just by looking at it yourself, but that's not good enough for Solomon. He's just using that as the base, it says, and he overlaid it with refined gold. So he's got to make a great throne, sit on it. It's got to be all ivory and then dunk it all in gold. We don't want you to see the white part of the ivory. That's the nice part. No, we want to dunk it all in gold, dip it all in gold, 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 gold. And there were six steps to the throne. And around the top of the throne at uh, its rear and arms on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the arms. And twelve lions were standing there on the six steps on one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. So when you looked at Solomon, you had to go up these six steps and on each side of the six steps there's these you know, lions that are all there. And then you see Solomon up there with his gold throne and made of ivory to back it up. When you talk to me, boy, you're seeing a lot of money. He, he's digging this stuff. And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were aluminum. No. They're gold. Guy doesn't have enough. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of what? Pure gold. None of it was silver. <laughs> That's trash, right? He goes... Uh, None of it was silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. What a commentary. Silver? Yeah, we throw that out to the poor. We don't want silver stuff. We want everything gold. For the king had uh, at sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram. Every, uh, once every three years the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver, ivory and... I don't know why they'd want these, but they got a few apes. And peacocks. Everyone, that's a great sign of wealth. Got an ape around, you know? don't know so king solomon became a greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom and in all the earth was seeking the presence of solomon to hear his wisdom which god had put in his heart and they brought every man his gift articles of silver and gold garments weapons spices horses and mules so much year by year now solomon gathered chariots and horsemen and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. He's building an army. And he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. And he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. As Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, wherever and the king's merchants procured them from Kayu for a price in a chariot oh and this is his prized possession in a chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150 and by the same means they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Air, uh, Arameans. And so now we're watching Solomon turning around and buy chariots and horses from Egypt. What a commentary. For one thing, we know if we went to Deuteronomy chapter 17, we saw that the kings are not supposed to multiply gold, horses, or women. God strictly forbade it from Moses. Now Solomon is multiplying horses. Not only that, he's buying horses from 
Egypt. Now, if you were with us when we went through Exodus and we saw that Moses, as he's leading the people out of the bondage and into the promised land, he comes to the Red Sea. And as he's getting ready to cross the Red Sea, or, you know, he doesn't see what's going on, and he raises up his hand, the Red Sea parts, and then as he crosses the Red Sea, and then on the backward side, there's the whole, what? Egyptian army behind him. Moses gets all of his people to the other side, and then we watch what? All the water caved in on all those Egyptian horses. And then Miriam, Moses' sister, she picks up the old tambourine, and she's just, oh, you know. And the first words out of her mouth are what? Oh, you know, the horse and rider has fell into the sea. And I'm sure God's sitting up there in heaven, and he goes, you know, we had Moses in the good old days we used to just crush those Egyptian horses and riders. They were nothing to us. And you got me, we rip them apart. Now he's going, Solomon, I bless you. And what are you doing? You're buying Egyptian horses and chariots. Moses, you you think that's going to help you? Come on, Moses. I mean, uh, 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 Solomon. We crush these things. They're they're nothing. Man, we just read in Luke, you know. The things that are highly esteemed in God's eyes are detestable in God's. And so many times we think, if I just have this, if I just I'm gonna be so rich and I'm gonna take all my wealth and I'm gonna turn around and I'm gonna just I'm gonna just buy this stuff, and God looks at the stuff that we lust after. And he goes, this stuff is vomit to me. It's detestable. It's disgusting. You run around and dance a jig thinking you're king of the world because you got yourself an Egyptian horse and and, an Egyptian rider and chariot. You think that's anything good? God goes, I flush all that down the ocean. I hate that stuff. And Solomon, what are you doing? I make you prosperous. You got all this stuff going on. And what are you doing? Come on. You can hear God. He's just going... Give me a break. And Solomon's ignoring. He's ignoring the telltale signs of strife in his own country. He's ignoring the fact that there are people in there. He's causing division in his country as he's puffing everything up. And all he's doing is hoarding everything for himself. And he's just having a big old party. And God sooner or later says, this ain't good. Chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. They were nice. Along with the daughters of Pharaoh, that was his first wife, he also grabs hold of a whole bunch of the Moabite, the Ammonite, the Edomite, the Sidian, uh, and the Hittite women. Yeah, he'll throw a few of them in bed with them. From the nations concerning uh, which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from their gods, after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. Oh, he was in love with all of them. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and oh yeah, throw in 300 concubines. Those were women that he had, but he didn't marry. And then it says quite clearly, and his wives turned his heart away. This is what the downfall of Solomon was. 
You can see it coming a million miles away through his arrogance, right? the way he didn't treat his friends right or wrong, the way he was trying to impress the Queen of Sheba, the things he thought he was supposed to have. But it was his wives that God really says, that was the downfall of you. For it came about when Solomon was old. It wasn't when he was young and, and scared on what to do. This is when he was filthy rich. It says his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, which was the sexual god of pleasure and fertility, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Amorites, which was a god of pleasure. And uh, in the... uh, the Sidonites, after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Um, and Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, which was the fire god, the detestable idol of Moab, and the uh, and on the mountain which is uh, east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon, God of fear. Thus also he did for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So Solomon now is crossing a line. He's going to start to build idols into the promised land. His job was to eradicate them. Number one rule, there are no other gods before me. Solomon says, I'll smash that to pieces starts to build up on the east side of Jerusalem all of these idols so you can go up there and his wives could say I missed you know being back at home we used to worship Milcom and I just can't do that anymore and I'm not going to be a good wife so build me an idol and oh alright so he builds her an idol he builds idols everywhere So the start of the downfall of the nation of Israel starts where? On this hill, just outside Jerusalem on the east. Any other events in history come at you that happened on the hill to the east side of Jerusalem? Little hill of Golgotha? Calvary where Christ is crucified. Right there is where Jesus is to be crucified. And he says, I'm paying for this sin. And I'm going to wash this blood away. And I'm going to pay the scourge to get rid of this. And I'm going to get rid of this scourge out of out of this out of the country. It's the sin. That's where Jesus is to die. And right there you're saying, Solomon, how excessive do you have to be? Everybody who's anybody, I don't care who you are, you're going to choke over that number of 700 wives, 300 concubines. I look at that and I'm staggered. Now, in case you didn't know, that let's say you're little Susie, you're bebopping down the street, and you're going to get married to King Solomon. Your dad comes up and says, Solomon, I got a present for you. I want you to have my daughter. Poor daughter goes up. She's going to get married. I guess there's a wedding ceremony. Blah, 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 blah. Must have gotten old after a while for Solomon. Let's make it quick. 
Obviously, the marriage has to be consummated. And it's a biblical principle that's underlined throughout the whole thing that once you are the queen, a woman of the king, that woman is never allowed to enter into another relationship with another man. It would be an insult. If I was King Solomon and I consummated my marriage with you, then you turned around and were to be intimate with another man. The woman could turn around and say, well, my new husband's an awful lot better than King Solomon. And it would be an insult to me. Some other man could be better lover than this woman. So I read this and I go, that's a thousand women that are devoted to Solomon. For his little ego, his little pride, all the things that he wanted, he's taken a thousand lives and just said, you men will sit there at my given beck and call and pleasure and you will be my harem over here and you'll never be married to a man that's really going to love you right, that's going to treat you right, that's not going to bear children for you right. You're just going to sit over here and collect dust for the rest of your life because you're my wife now. And I look at that and you go, what an atrocity. What a greedy, arrogant guy to take women all day long like candy. And if you think of the statistics, you know, if this guy is really good, you know, what are your chances of seeing the king, your husband, what, once that, you know, once every three or four years? And he's, you know, just being really prolific through the chain of events on what you're supposed to do. You go, what kind of life is that? He's, he's destroying lives just by grabbing wives. And I go, Solomon, there's just, it's wrong. And, and now you're going to bring idolatry into the nation. Now you're buying chariots. Now you're sitting down there. You're trying to impress all the people with your pride. You're building gold. You're throwing it all over the place. You've built everything up. You go, Solomon, why do you think God's blessing your socks off so much? So you can turn around and build idols. Are you that stupid? God's saying, I've got a ship. I've got the course set for you. You're in perpetual motion. Everything is going your way, Solomon. I've blessed your socks off. Now, what are you doing? You keep throwing roadblocks. You keep putting resistance to just turn around and slam it. So now all of a sudden, chapter 11 reads what? The anger of the Lord is now burning against Solomon. Solomon, you had the gravy train to success. You had everything handed your way. And what happened? Oh, I think we could just trace this path of Solomon and his arrogance. His building up a military, his trying to accumulate stuff, keeping people in forced labor instead of saying, well, let's liberate some of these people. Let's make it enjoyable to be alive. Instead of just blessing me, let's share the wealth. Why should I take a thousand women and ruin their lives? That's right. That ain't right. And at this point, God's going to systematically go in to just destroy and rip out the nation from underneath them. God's going to raise up Jeroboam to go against Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and say, we're going to rip this country in pieces because God ain't happy with it. Like what old uh, Cornelius always says, God knows how to start a prayer meeting. He knows how to get one going. (laughs) And, And he wants you to serve him. And if you don't think you're going to say, I ain't got time for prayer, I ain't got time for this, well, God will just throw so much chaos into your life. You're going to say, man, i got to get to a prayer meeting. God knows how to put you there. And that's where he wants you to be. He wants you on your knees saying, Lord, I love you. I need you. I don't ever want to stray from you. I'm concerned about you. You need to be day in and day out devoted to the Lord, following his path and saying, Lord, this is where I want to be. And you know what? God's saying this is exactly where I want you to be. 
I want you right here in front of my face. And if I'm blessing your socks off and you can almost see God, he's so scared sometimes to bless us. I, I really think he's like, man, I just love to give Dave a, a new car and a new house. But if I do that, he's never going to turn to me. I wish I could give Dave a million dollars in his checking account. And if I gave Dave a million dollars in his checking account, you know what? God goes, ah. the guy would never even get on his knees again. And what do we say? Oh, no, not me, God. No, you give me the million dollars. Oh, trust me, God, I'd help the poor. I'd be good. And Oh, just a little car for me. Of course I need some new things, God. Yeah, that's right, a little horse on it. And God, he's saying, oh, man, I, that ain't right. And, and God looks at us, and Solomon is the prime example. The wisest man that ever lived can be so stupid. And for you and I, God looks at us and he says, man, I want to I put you on a path of perpetual motion. You have everlasting life if you believe in Jesus Christ. He wants to set you free so that you can sit down there. And he said it. He's got it right there. And he wants to sit down and take your life and to move it into such a direction and says, Dave, I've got the path cleared for you. I've done all the work. Now you've got to be smart enough to keep serving the Lord or stupid things we allow in our life they trip us up they take us away and next thing you know god's mad at me and i go lord i don't want to be that dumb i want to serve you with the integrity of my heart i want to listen to your voice day in and day out i don't want to go by the things that you can destroy god the things that i highly esteem are detestable in the sight of god man looks at things it lusts at things and it wants things and you know, we got to be careful of everything that we're doing with our life. i got to look at something that says, Lord, this is a beautiful gift. I don't want it to turn me away. I don't want to have, uh, what a precious woman, you know, a beautiful woman, and then have this woman turn my heart away from you. I want to serve you, Lord, and I don't ever want to give it up. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close in prayer. Question, comments, and criticism? Dave. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we do wish and pray, Father, we hope and pray that we would always keep our hearts turned towards you, Father. Every day we'd seek your face, we'd read your word. Every day, Father, we would uh, turn towards you, Father, and, and be dependent upon you. Father, as you are here today in our midst, I pray, Father, that uh, we would be here today in your midst every day. Father, work your work in our lives. We thank you for our church, Father. I pray that we would never be puffed up in pride, turn our hearts from you, and seek after the material things, Father. Your laws are written in stone, Father. And I pray that we would understand those laws and understand that there are boundaries, Father, in places that we cannot go. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, but I pray that would never turn into a license for us to become selfish and wicked. Father, your love and your mercy just is ever abounding, Father. And we thank you that as we are fools, Father, and we have done many things wrong, I pray that you would forgive us, Father. Help us to seek after your face, Father, each and every single day. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Father, we do thank you. We do praise you that you're an awesome God, that you have been working uh, uh, around the clock, Father, in this little church, that you've been doing so much, Father. It's just obvious to the most casual observer that your hand is true and faithful. Father, I pray that we'd always remember the things that you have set in motion for us, Father, and that we would be faithful to walk in them. You have forged a path, Father, and I pray that uh, we would just walk down that path in your grace and your mercy and enjoy the ride. Father, you're a good God, and I pray that your spirit would be here today, that uh, we could focus on you and that we'd stay focused on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We're knee-deep in the uh, life of King Solomon. King Solomon was David's son. King Solomon uh, took over for a very big, famous King David. He had to walk in his father's footsteps, and it was a tall order to fill. Everyone loved David. David did everything right. Uh, He was probably the king of all time, space, and dimension, and it was probably a difficult task to follow after him. And Solomon... Uh, as he was taking over the throne, he had a dream and God uh, uh, revealed himself to him in a dream. And he said, Solomon, what would you like? I'll give you anything you want. And Solomon said, I just want to be able to come in and come out. I want to know how to follow in my father's footsteps. And it really touched God's heart. God says, you know, you could ask for money. You could ask for women. You could ask for your enemies to be killed. But no, you asked for the right thing. You asked for wisdom. And Solomon goes on to the fame of being the wisest man that ever lived. And Solomon wants to build the temple. His father David would have liked to build the temple, but God says, you're not going to build the temple because you're a man of bloodshed, David. And so your son Solomon, Shalom, peace, your son of peace, is going to be the one that's going to erect this huge temple. And we watched the temple then being built, and we saw the symbolism, we saw the things there. It was a magnificent structure. It was just caked and double-caked and triple-loaded with gold. Everything was gold everywhere. And it was a magnificent structure, and it had huge symbolism. It was a place for all of Israel to gather, to come together, and to celebrate the Lord. And we had the grand opening, if you would, of the temple last two weeks, whenever we got together. And there, the best part of the temple is that God shows up. This huge ball of fire of the glory of the Lord. Everybody steps back and goes, whoa, God. I mean, God showed up and we talked about that as his Shekinah glory, the glory of the Lord filling the temple and everybody having a party and a half. They were supposed to have this seven-day festival and they said, this is so much fun being here with God. Let's do it seven more days. And everything is just going Solomon's way. Everything is set up and we are just having a great time. Things go downhill from there. Chapter 9. It says, Now it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord in the king's house, his own house, which took more time to build than the temple did, and all that Solomon desired to do. So everything in his little heart was fulfilled. He's satisfied. He's on top of the world. At that point, verse 2, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon, when he had that revelation in a dream. And the Lord said to him, he said, I have heard your prayers, and I like that. God does hear our prayers. 
I've heard your prayers and your supplications, the things that you've asked for, which you've... uh, which you have made before me, I have consecrated the house which you have built, meaning I put my stamp of approval on there, just like you've asked, which you have built by putting my name there forever. And listen to what God says, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as for you, and here's the hard part, if... You will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances. Here's the if and then God says, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel. How long? Forever just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if, if, that's that biggest word in the Bible, if you or your sons shall indeed turn away from following me and shall not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you and shall go and serve other gods and worship them then (coughs) consequences will be I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. I love that figure of speech. But anyway, verse 80 says, and this house will be become a heap of ruins Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss, right? And say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, well, they were so stupid because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. So Solomon is getting another word from the Lord. God wants to speak to him. And he says, Solomon, in so many words, I've done my part. I've showed up. I, uh, you asked for me to be here. I'm here right in front of you. You've got my attention just like you've asked for. We've got the whole thing set up. And God is saying, I've made a deal with you. If you are willing to keep the law, be a good boy, do the Ten Commandments, do what you need to do, I'm going to work with you. I've set a course for you. And I like this. The word that he uses, he says at the end of verse 3, he says, My name therefore, uh, my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And I love that. I think of the word perpetually, and it's an important concept, I guess, is you think of perpetual motion. If you were to have perpetual motion, I think of a a spacecraft that's traveling out in space. I guess the the theory is that when you're out away from the Earth's atmosphere, you're away from the Earth's pressure, that when you go out into actual true space, space is the absence of something. It's a huge vacuum is what space is. And so what you'd have is perpetual motion. If you ever watch, you know, I think of the Saturn V rocket. You think of, you know, the the shuttle goes off into space. You think of the little 
you know, Mars rover that crashes out there. The idea is when you're going out into orbit, you have to have enough thrust and enough pressure to break away from the Earth. But then once you get into outer space, you start cranking up to these speeds. You start going up to about, I guess, 25,000 miles per hour. And as you're cranking up to 25,000 miles per hour, you bust out of the Earth's atmosphere, and then you hit this huge vacuum. And then you don't need anything else to keep going 25,000 miles per hour. You're just cooking right along, and you're going at this speed, and there's nothing there in space to slow you down. There's no oxygen. There's no air. There's no dust. There's nothing. There's just a big vacuum, and you're just, you have a perpetual motion. So if they want to send a guy to the moon, they have to calculate on all these things on where the Earth is turning. So when this spaceship goes up, it breaks out of the Earth's atmosphere, and then they launch it right towards the moon, and then all they need is about a little propane tank of fuel to direct them around. They just go, shh, shh. But they're cooking at 25,000 miles per hour. And then they got to hit a back pressure to slow themselves down to go into the moon's orbit. And then they just need a couple of, you know, firecrackers to blast them off to go back to Earth. There's, there's nothing in the way. They have a perpetual motion. There's nothing there to slow it down. And God is saying, he's saying, I like this. He's going, I've got you and I've cleared a path for you and now it's just perpetual motion to get you to walk the Christian walk and to go down there. I've, I've, I've opened up the door and now the only thing we really got to worry about is the things that we have to put in the way of God's plan that is going to cause resistance. And poor Solomon... He's got, the, he's got it wide open. He's shooting right out the door. Nothing's there, but Solomon is going to start to put things in his path that are going to cause resistance to slow him down, and he's going to recognize he's going to crash and burn. And you're going to watch the wisest man in the world blow it. And we're going to see, and we want to dissect this, and we're going to see a couple of things that, that he's going to do wrong. And, and God's even telling me, you know, if, if, you're going to, if you're going to walk away from me, then you're going to expect a problem. And everything that we've got is going to be destroyed. And I love that concept. God's saying, you're going to become a proverb and a byword. And so it's like the average man on the street, right? If you look at it from his perspective, he's going to sit down and says, man, look at Israel. They had the temple. They had the gold. They had all this stuff. And God says, you walk away from me, it's going to be a heap of ruins. And some guy's going to walk by and says, oh, don't ever be an Israel. Don't ever be a Jew. Don't ever be, you know, one of these people that lived in Jerusalem. And it, 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 to be an Israelite, and that's just going to be an automatic proverb. It's going to be an automatic buzzword. Don't be a blank. And, and God's saying, you're going to be coined a phrase. Everyone's going to look at you, and you're going to be such an example. And people are going to say, Look at this heap of ruins. How did this pile of rubble get here? Oh, you're dumb as the Israelites. They turned their backs on God, and now look what happened to them. And I think of that, you know, you, you, you say to somebody, you know, we watch them walk with the Lord, you know, we watch them fall apart. We've got poor Billy Bob in our church, and he's running with the Lord real good, and then poor Billy Bob stumbles and falls. You watch the next guy pull up and you say, hey, buddy, you know, don't be a Billy Bob, you know. Billy Bob was stupid. You, you're walking down the same path. You got everything going your way. 
Don't pull a Billy Bob on me. Billy Bob is a guy that turned and walked away from the Lord. And God says, don't be that byword. Don't be a, a, a proverb. Don't turn around and say, oh, I can't believe how dumb they were. And that's what everyone's going to see. The average man on the street's going to look at it and gasp and say, whatever happened to them? Well, they pulled an Israelite. That's what they did. They, they were smart enough to walk with God and then they were dumb enough to walk away from him. So God's going to bring all this on this calamity. So let's break down a couple things that we're going to see Solomon do wrong. Things that are going to add friction to his flight path, if you would. Verse 10. Now you can read some of these things and say it sounds real good. But if we know the end result is failure, it causes us to question them. Verse 10. And it came about at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses. So 20 years later says the house of the Lord and the king's house. And it says Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold according to all his desire. Then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Sounds nice. So Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him. So... Hiram, king of Tyre, he was the guy up north, the northern border up around Lebanon, if you would. And if you remember, Hiram was the guy that uh, turned around and, and gave an abundance to Solomon. And, he, and he, he provided, and they were good friends. And he goes, Solomon, I want to help you build this huge temple that you've got. So Solomon, what is he trying to say? He says, I want to give you a gift. You know, what can I give you? I'm going to give you these 20 cities, chunk of real estate. I want you to have this as a gift to say thank you. So Hiram turns around. He's going to come down south and he's going to look at these 20 cities. And uh, verse 12, he says, So Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him. And they didn't please him. What's this trash you're giving me? And he said, What are these cities which you've given me, my brother? So they were called the land of Kabul to this day. Kabul, Kabul, where it means worthless trash. And Hiram turned around, and I have a hard time understanding this chain of events here. And Hiram sent to the king 120 talents of gold. So Hiram comes down, and he looks at this, and he goes, This is the ghetto. Hey, thanks, but no thanks. You gave me some swamp land. Not impressed with this, Solomon. I've sat down there, I've given you gold to help you build your temple. I've given you lumber and timber. I've given you workers. We've worked out wages to send down all the, the mighty Lebanon ships to come down here. You turn around and give me these junky cities. And then he turns around and gives them 120 talents of gold. Now, I, sifting through this, I guess there's a couple ways to take a look at this. You could turn around and say, Maybe Hiram's looking at this and he's saying, Solomon, you're not supposed to give me anything. I'm supposed to give you something. You're the great king of the God of Israel, the one true God. The way it works is I give things to you. And you can turn around and look at it the other way and maybe he's saying, man, I'm so insulted by this. I guess I, I, I got to give you something back. But he's pretty insulted over this. And I, you could look at it and say, maybe Solomon, and if you understand the economics of what happened solomon sunk everything he had into the temple he had nothing to give him back no matter how you look at it 
Solomon dishonored his friend. Didn't treat him with respect. Didn't give him a good enough gift back. Didn't appreciate what he had. Maybe Solomon was playing cheap. And he says, well, I'm going to give you this because this is all I've got. And Hiram says, nah, that's not the way it works. That's not the way we're supposed to be given and taken. And either way you're looking at it, you have a heathen is going to outgive Solomon. <coughs> Bad witness. Bad example for you and I if the world can be more generous than the church. Bad example for us if we are to be Christians and we give cheap gifts back. Oh, man, I really love you. You've done everything for me. Went down to the Dollar General, spent a buck on you, wrapped up a gift and gave it to you. And we do have a tendency to be rather cheap. And Solomon is turning around looking at this. He's paying the dishonor to him, and somehow or another it's working out there. I just think that I, I can't quite understand what's happened here, but it seems that, that obviously this guy here, Hiram was a friend. And he turns around and says, Solomon, just let me give the money to you. Let's keep it going this way. Don't think you have to insult me by giving me a cheap gift back. Weird. Part of the friction process, being a cheap giver. Part of the things that uh, one of the first hallmarks we can look at us going down is, is that we don't reciprocate what other people have done for us. A lot of people have blessed me. And I, I can't be cheap in not even saying thank you, not even uh, appreciating what, what needs to happen. You can have a lot of people come over and help me put my roof on my house, you know, but when you need your roof done on your house, uh, I can be hard to find. <laughs> Work day, oh, I got something to do. That's not the right heart. You know, it's, uh, we, we help someone move. And we go, oh, man, we're all up there sweating, moving boxes up and down. And then we go, okay, now I'm getting ready to move. And where did everyone go? They're all gone. And it, it should be a time that we should be generous. In the same way that people have been generous to us, we should be generous back. Treat other people the same way. So we're watching this now. The Solomon's starting to do a couple things wrong here. Verse 15. He says, now this is the account of the forced labor which Solomon levied to build the house of the Lord, his own house. So he had forced labor. People that were not just joyfully giving, they were forced to. And this is going to be an important point for us. It says, uh, to build the house of the Lord, his own house, and the Milo. And that's going to be a stickler point for us, this Milo. The wall of Jerusalem Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. There's going to be a couple cities that Solomon is going to have built and he's going to use forced labor to do it. And we're going to see this word Milo. A Milo is going to be a fortified wall. It's really one of these turrets, a tower that you're seeing at the edge of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden we're watching, if you would, Jerusalem being this beautiful city that should be open to all the people and we're going to watch a Milo start to be built around Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to tell you, Solomon's going to blow it. He's going to fail miserably. He's going to put his son Rehoboam on the throne. Rehoboam is going to try and walk into his father's footsteps, and basically what's going to happen. And Jeroboam is going to revolt against Rehoboam. You got that? Solomon's son's Rehoboam. He should be the heir to the throne. Jeroboam's going to come up and he's going to rip the country in half and cause a civil war. 
Jeroboam comes up and he says, I'll tell you why I don't want to be part of this kingdom anymore. And the reason he states is because your father Solomon built the Milo. For the average man on the street, I think that what he's starting to say here is, you know, we want to be part of Jerusalem. We want to be part of this God thing. We've got God, the Shekinah glory. We've got all this access to God. Solomon comes up and what does he start to do? He starts to build a fortified city out of Jerusalem and builds the Milo. And the average man on the street is starting to say, wait a second, pal, you're up there in your ivory towers and you're starting to use that as a tool to separate me from God. And man on the street is going to resist that and revolt and says, we're not going to be part of this. You're not going to take God and throw him in a corner and say, now I got to pay 25 cents to get through the toll to go see him. We built it. God should be accessible for all of us. And Jeroboam, if you wanted to go through that whole process in chapter 11, verse 27, once we get there, he's the one that's going to say, it's the Milo that drove me up the wall. I couldn't handle it. How dare you build a fortified tower to make the Jerusalem look like a, a fortress instead of a city without walls, which is a buzzword in the Bible to say that it's a land of peace. We don't need to have a wall up. Everyone can come or go as they want. You see the new Jerusalem that's going to be built. We're going to watch. Israel is going to be established without walls. It's a land of peace. People can come and go. That's the utopia, if you would. But the Milo is going to be a problem. And he's using forced labor. Verse 16. Another thing that's going to cause resistance, right? And it says, For Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer, which is going to be a southern city. He's going to come up from the south and he's going to take over this city, Gezer, uh, and burn it with fire. And he killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Pharaoh comes up and says, you married my daughter, Solomon. I'll tell you what, you got these Canaanites still living in the land. I'll go up and we'll burn their city to the fire. And I'll give you this prime piece of real estate to start another fortress. So Solomon built Gezer in the lower Beth Horon and Baalith and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah. So he's fortifying himself. And on top of that, all the storage cities which Solomon had. Storage would mean he's starting to hoard things, right? Another piece of friction that's coming Solomon's way. And all the storage cities which Solomon had, even the cities for his chariots, in the cities for his horsemen, and all that it pleased Solomon to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, in all the land under his rule. So doesn't this sound good? Solomon's getting big and, and, and happy. As for all the people, the poor guy on the street, who were left of the Ammonites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the sons of Israel... Their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the sons of Israel were unable to destroy utterly, from them Solomon levied forced laborers even to this day. So Solomon had some slaves. Maybe you could call him just the average minimum wage worker if you don't like the term slave. These guys were forced to work to make a living. Now I suppose at this point we can kind of clap and say... These guys were all the 
scum anyway. God said, get rid of them all. They were all supposed to die. The Israelites were supposed to go into the promised land and wipe out all these people. And I guess if they didn't wipe them out, then it's by the mercy of God, at least they can be a slave. So we're not all that bad. But I think it's starting to cause a rift in the people themselves. You're starting, if you would, to cause a two-tiered society. You're starting to have class envy. I don't know if that was God's design and intent to sit down there and to have some people be forced into just labor while other people were treated like royalty just by their birth. Verse 22, But Solomon did not make slaves of the sons of Israel. Nope, they would never do a hard job. They wouldn't dig a ditch. For they were men of war, his servants, his princes, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people doing the work. As soon as Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her, then he built the Milo. Now, three times in a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and a peace offering on the altar, which he had built to the Lord, burning incense with them on the altar, which was born, uh, which was uh, before the Lord. So he finished the house. So you're watching, if you would, this guy that's the average man on the street is seeing that there's a class warfare going on. You're watching the Milo starting to be built. And you're watching Solomon and all of his wealth hoard everything together. Now, once again, there's, you can say, good boy, Solomon. You're, you're establishing you know, the, the Israelites as God's chosen people. And you're showing the blessings of the Lord. But you're seeing the, 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 the hint behindness of the friction, a degree of arrogance, if you would. It's a, hidden, it's a hidden little piece of friction in there, but it's that arrogance behind what's happening that's going to start to work its way out, that's starting to cause Solomon to crash and burn. It would have been nice if we talked about last Sunday that as God has blessed us so much, He has blessed us so that we would bless others. And he has blessed certain peoples, not, in, not so they would hoard it to themselves, but they could give and share. And hence it becomes a sense that all of us can have uniformity, all things being in common, because we have. So God's blessed me with this great ability to play piano. Do I keep it all to myself and just hoard my piano skills and sit in my room? Or do I share that to make someone else who's depressed and miserable come in and hear a piano concerto or whatever it is? And they're all, oh, that's made my whole life. And see, now I've shared my gifts and I've given it out. And it's the way it is with all of our gifts. They're given for us to express and to share. And so he's building a military now. So King Solomon, he also built a ship of fleets and Ezron Geber, which is near Elroth uh, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, sailors who knew the sea along with servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and took, as in grab hold of the plunder of war, 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to, the, to King Solomon. So Solomon now is not just resting on his own gifts that people are giving him. He's now started this fire that needs to be fed of his needs of gold. And now he's going out to start grabbing hold of that gold and saying, I need more money. I need more money. 
You can almost sense this addict side of him. I've got so much gold everywhere, I need more. And now he's going to go out and grab hold of it and take it in. So it sounds kind of good, like the Lord's really blessing good old Solomon. And now we see another side that sounds like it's a good old blessing of Solomon. It says, chapter 10, verse 1, Now when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon, according to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. So we're getting into a famous passage where the queen of Sheba, the queen of Sheba would be the queen of the, who? Sabians. Who are the dreaded Sabians? Who got bothered by the dreaded Sabians? Who? Oh, come on. Job? Job was sitting there minding his own business, right? And who came up and stole all of his 10,000 camels and 5,000 things? The hordes of Sabians would come in and grab hold of him and rip old Job apart. Remember, we made a few jokes about the dreaded Sabians. Never mind. But that's the Queen of Sheba, which is around uh, Air, uh, Arabia, Saudi Arabia. And she's going to be a woman of renown. And actually, it's going to be, you know, she was beautiful. She was rich. She was attractive. And she's traveling some thousand, twelve hundred miles or so to come see Solomon. So it, it's a high honor. And so this woman's coming up and she's going, hey, I'm a queen. I've heard about these things. I just, I've heard you're supposed to be the smartest man in the world. Just how smart are you? So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue. I don't know. That's a whole bunch of people with her. With, uh, with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. So she's coming bringing a gift as well, a nice gift. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So she goes, here's some brain stumpers for you. And Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. It almost has that sound that Solomon is letting it all out on the table. He's got to leave nothing as far as discretion goes. And he's, I think, out to impress this woman and says, I want to just show you how good I am. And so throw it. Go ahead. Give me your hardest brain teaser. You try and lay one on me and I'll I'll sit down and discuss everything to you. And he's just sitting down there in his pomp and glory and having a heyday with this. And when the verse four says, when the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon from the house that he had built. So she's looking at this temple and going, this is art, baby. She looked at the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters in the attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. So she's walking in and she goes, I can't believe you've got this whole house running like a clock. You got food coming, you got waiters, you got men there with their cups and everybody's in their little tuxedos and everybody's lined up and she's going, I've never seen anything like this before. You have got this down to a science. And she's just going, ah, you know, there's no more spirit in her. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.